Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. So welcome back to another episode of the Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Nick Carman. This evening, I'm joined by Emma Fletcher, Low Energy Homes Director for Octopus Energy. Emma began her career in real estate advisory at Bidwells before moving to a big name in regional house building, Hill Group. So how is it she now finds herself at the cutting edge of policy and sustainability of our utilities? So Emma, thank you very much for joining me. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. So given what we're going to uh, the sort of story we're going to tackle now, Emma, let's get started. Tell us how chapter one begins. Oh, I think with everybody, it's a little bit hazy, but probably around about eight or nine. I just loved a Thursday when the Watford Observer came out and you got to see all the little pictures of houses. I guess it was kind of an era of the Argos catalogue as well, right? Used to seeing little pictures. And I... uh, I used to like trying to work out what I thought my parents' house was worth. And I think this unnerved my parents no end because they thought, well, well, she wants to know about the price of the house. You know, what plans has she got for me? But I don't know. It just fascinated me that you could be making decisions on houses just by a picture of the front of the house. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm looking forward to, uh, to see how you get on then with, uh, with getting rid of your parents' house and under their nose. Let's see, uh, let's see how we get on. Uh, tell us how this develops. Well, I haven't succeeded and bless my mum is still in the same <laughs> house. So uh, still there. But but actually, sort of the clock moves forward, really. And I went to a state school in, in Watford and I had a really great teacher who decided that she wanted to send me on a lower sixth law course at Cambridge. And I went and spent two fabulous days in Cambridge, but realised I hadn't done Latin and probably law was not for me. But I've always loved human geography. Why do people live places? How do they live there? And actually looking through the brochure, I found land economy. So I applied to do land economy at Cambridge and and really it was the best course for me. Bit of law bit of property, bit of surveying thrown in, but but really it was about economics and how does the world tick and, and that I found fascinating. You know, how money really drives decisions, how human personalities influence decisions and, and fundamentally how how settlements came about. I find all of that interesting. And then a good dollop of utilities, as you rightly say, beginning, and uh, some transport as well. So yeah, how does society work? How do populations tick and, and why settle here and make this place a town, a village or a a city. So that's the theory. What was your first sort of practical experience? So slightly strangely, I've been a tour guide at Buckingham Palace and I happened to mention this to somebody and um, oh, they said, oh, you've got an interest in the royals. And I'm not sure I had a total interest in the royals at that point, but I have been a tour guide and someone said, would you like to come and do some work experience on the Duchy of Cornwall? And I leapt at that opportunity and I had the most fabulous two weeks down on the Duchy of Cornwall doing work experience. And I thought, you know what, being outside, looking at different things every single day, that really does appeal. So um, two great weeks then led to me applying to do work experience the following summer at Bidwell's a surveying company in Cambridge and East Anglia and an office in London. And I spent the summer working linked to their rural team, but doing the compulsory purchase plans for what was the Channel Tunnel Rail Link from a section between um, St Pancras and the coast. And I found it utterly fascinating. But, you know, you could be designing this amazing infrastructure that was going to benefit millions of people forever and ever. But the amount of effort that needed to go into it, literally surveying it, sorting it, finding it and securing the land. So that was probably my first real dabble into the real world of surveying. And then very kindly, they offered me a job for when I finished my degree 
the following year and and at the time it seemed just like you know perfect for me to move into rural surveying having had the summer that I had. So that's good to know we, we sort of cemented that that initial interest and we've got lots of the, the story left left to go and we, I want to reserve as much time as that as possible but is there something you could pick out from that early days? Is there anything that you particularly learned during those first first few years at Bidwells about either about yourself or about sort of how you know how you were going to be building this career? I think a love of learning stuff that I didn't know and not being scared to learn it. You know, following following down maybe slight rabbit holes at first, but but actually if something catches your eyes it's a point of interest. Surveying's a very broad church. So actually, you know, it's called the rural department, but it doesn't just mean you're doing one part of rural surveying. You actually need to know about renting out houses because those are on estates. It's about managing farms. It's about managing the land. It's about forestry. You know, I spent a good six months repairing the side of a river bank. There's so much interdependency through these different disciplines that actually the more hungry you are to learn more, the better you become as a surveyor. And and yes, you can find specialisms, but actually you've got a pretty good two couple of years to really explore what might be the thing that, that gets you excited and wants to go to work in the morning. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm sure that's a con- sort of a topic we will come back to about the, about the learning and the, um, at the interest in, in the new. One of the, the the two sort of pillars of, of this podcast is is benefiting from your experience in terms of how you analyse when you're learning and when you're not learning. Being able to spot when that pace of your career begins to slow and when that leads then to a catalyst for change. And so benefit of hindsight, we know there's a change coming. You, know, you leave advisory and then go, go move into development. Do you remember much about that decision-making process? Do you remember as to how you spotted that was the route you wanted to take and why? So I think for me, rural was probably not my natural place to go and be. And that came to me maybe the second year of my two-year APC training. Because on estates, they've been going for years and years and years, but actually there's quite a lot of similarity year on year. So when it came to the second year of doing the same thing I'd done the year before, for example, you know, looking over the farm budgets and things like that, I thought this is a little bit too repetitive for what I probably will want from a career. Mm -hmm. Now, don't get me wrong, that suits people down to the ground. But the thought of doing that every single year for the next 40, 50 years actually did frighten me quite a lot. And talking with one of the partners, I then moved into actually doing rural farm sales instead and that to me gave me much more of a buzz it felt a lot more dynamic no sale was ever going to be the same no year would ever be the same as it was the year before there was always something different something challenging and then at the time Bidwells had just set up the development department and I was asked if I wanted to go and join there and I was I was at this crossroads do I stay in rural sales where I was about to take my APC or did I take a leap of faith knowing I'd be in the development department two weeks after I'd taken my APC in rural, which was kind of difficult to say the least. But I don't know, my gut just talked to me. I just knew that a career in development just would probably tick the boxes. I needed the buzz of a sale. I needed the buzz of chasing a win, winning the client. I think estate management for me, with the greatest respect to everybody who does this, was just a bit too steady for me, aged 21, 22, who was just starting their career and wanted something a bit more to capture the imagination. 
and, and push me a bit harder. I think it's the thrill of the chase, to be honest. The thrill of the chase of winning the work, the thrill of the chase of then getting the sale and getting the deal done. I think, I, I don't know, it really spoke to me. Well, then let's get into it then. Because uh, as I mentioned, benefit of hindsight, we know there's a change then coming from Bidwells. And you joined then, you know, one of the big the big names in particularly sort of regional development, uh, Hill Development. So I wasn't ever going to go to Hill. I'd spent two years working with Fenland District Council on a brilliant regeneration project. And the project had been initially awarded, contracts hadn't been signed to Taylor Woodrow, as was. And they basically offered me a job to go their side of the fence to carry the project on. And for me, that was a fabulous opportunity. I'd spent two solid years you know, bringing land together in parcels, doing all sorts of different deals, sorting out the planning. We had the threat of another compulsory purchase again on a landowner. And it was, it seemed like the right natural step if I was going to go anywhere to move on the same project, but move to a developer. But I'd handed my notices as I'm working it through. The market was changing. Hill got wind that I was leaving Bidwell's and Andy Hill every day for, 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 it seemed like weeks, I'm sure it was only a week or so, sent me articles on how the merger of Taylor Woodrow with Taylor Wimpy would cause problems in the East. And so I got cold feet. I cancelled out of my move to Taylor Woodrow. And a couple of days later, Mr. Hill popped by. I remember it was Easter weekend. He personally drove by and dropped a contract for me through the door. I didn't see him, but I genuinely thought if a man like that can take time to come to my house and drop a contract through the door, then he must be worth something. And and sure enough, I signed for Hill. So by the time I left Bidwells, some people in my card said, good luck at Taylor Woodrow. (laughs) Other people said, good luck at Hill. Um, And to be fair to Andy, whose judgment I, I, I really do trust, Wimpy merged with Taylor Woodrow and actually the office I was going to was closed down and most people there either moved offices or were made redundant. So actually, I think I was swerved out of a difficult situation and found myself at Hill. And how were the first, first, well, let's say early days at Hill? How did that develop? Very different. It's safe to say being a consultant and going to work for a developer is a very different environment. You're actually at the coal face. You've got somebody's money you're actually spending. I mean, it's not to say you didn't have other people's money before, but it wasn't quite so instantly spent mm-hmm. or gained. So, yeah. There's a big difference, isn't it, between giving advice, isn't it? And let's use that example of, of spending money. It's a big difference between giving advice of how to spend that money and actually going ahead and spending it. Very much so. And actually, I always had the mantra in my head, what would I do if it was my money and tried to put myself in that position? But definitely running spreadsheets, a developer's view of the world is very different to a consultant's with a piece of software. You know, um, you're working alongside colleagues who do know the cost of what it costs to build a house literally last week. So therefore, you've got live data far better than anything you ever have as a consultant. And then working along other professionals, such as sales teams, marketing teams. And then weirdly, when you're a consultant, you don't on the whole talk to other consultants, say your competitors, right? Mm -hmm. So when you go and work for a developer, what's really nice is you can actually go and talk to other consultants, meet other people working in what were Bidwell's competitors, the likes of Savills or Carter Jonas or Cheffins in Cambridge. So you get to see a whole new scope of people that before potentially your competitors and you never really engaged with in a business environment unless across the table and it was normally fairly heated. So I found that fascinating. And then just being out on site, 
seeing how homes just suddenly pop out the ground. And I was in the land and planning team, buying the land and sorting it. And I always think of myself as the first stage of the sausage machine. You know, you're bringing the land in for the team. You're working with the handover pre-construction team. You have to keep an oversight of what they're doing on construction, an oversight on sales, because at the end of the day, it's your appraisal you did possibly three, four years earlier that, that they're all working to and you want to make sure it makes a profit. Live and die by as well. Exactly, exactly. You know, nobody wants a, a failing site. So, yeah, just very different. But again, for those out there who are a bit more of an adrenaline seeker, definitely, definitely a lot more highs and lows in quick succession daily in development. Tiny wins, tiny lows, but but you can get some fantastic big wins such as getting planning through or starting on site. And and for me, that was the buzz that I really loved. So in terms of sort of a time check, you you joined Hills after around about sort of uh, seven years in terms of your career, and you spend the next five years with with Hills. So not only you know this is a substantial part of your career, but it's it's also quite an interesting time then in terms of sort of individually about sort of your own development. What skills do you think you were you were honing at this at this stage? Definitely toughening up, I think, in terms, not in a bad way, but just being a little bit more streetwise. I guess I I hadn't been that streetwise previously, but also learning how to make long-term relationships with people. Because if you're buying land off anybody, it may be just the first phase of other phases. I had a great pleasure in making a lot of joint ventures happen. So working alongside other people, smaller developers, landowners, and actually working in partnership we had a lot of housing association customers as well, which were long-term relationships. So knowing that your partner is somebody to be valued and really learning to grow with each other, you know, with the highs and the lows that development brings, mm. I think that's really important. I also had both my children when I was at Hill. Um, I had six months off each time and and definitely without a shadow of a doubt, they made me far more empathetic to those around me and understanding. So I think I think for definite, my people skills for sure improved during that time because you're talking with members of the public, you're talking to the communities, you're, you're, you're doing public consultations, you're talking to councillors, you're talking to planners, you're talking to all sorts of stakeholders. And also, you, whilst you're not an expert in everything, you have to have a good overview about what all the teams are doing and what the expectations are and be able to also help unclog the sausage machine where you need to to get it to the next stage so that's what we were learning and honing what were some of the biggest challenges at that period it can be challenging being a woman in those environments on site um not from hill colleagues i always had the greatest of respect but subcontractors were not used to seeing women on site so much and i think that has changed an awful lot and i'm delighted to say that um there's a lot more female site managers and things like that come through the system. But at the time, it was a fairly lonely place to be a female on site. Um, the site toilets were often used for the storage of toilet rolls. So, you know, you'd open the door and that's where all the uh, that's where all the toilet rolls and the cleaning products were kept, right? So, you know, possibly the toilet hadn't been used, one would hope, and since the last time you were on site. So... Those sort of things are challenging. All the, the fluorescent jackets were in one size, which was large, and I'm quite short, so they were always way too big. So, again, these things have changed so dramatically just in my career, thank goodness. But but at the time, these things were slightly challenging. 
I also know in development you get judged by the vehicle you drive onto site first. So that's quite funny in development terms. So I always try to upgrade to the next level of car car allowance in the next band so I could get a slightly better car to be seen slightly ahead of where I probably was in the pecking order. <laughs> um, always good to keep the boys on site on their toes. So there's a lot of things like that, just little things that make a difference. And it's just how how you engage with other people is really important. You know, actually, a good dollop of confidence in you actually know what you're talking about, and 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 then also admit where you you don't, and when you need to bring in an expert. So so have faith in what you know, and then bring in others to back you up. I think is something I learned a lot during that time. Okay, so that's we've covered off the what you're learning, and then some of the challenges. And you know, I mentioned earlier in our conversation now about about one of the key pillars for this this podcast is about sort of spotting when things are going right for you and maybe when the learning has, has slowed. So when do you remember that there was a change in terms of either how much you enjoyed the role in terms of how much a challenge that role was? So I guess it kicked off with a site where I was trying to provide the affordable housing for local people. And that seemed entirely right in my small simplistic mind but it was a section 106 element of a development site we were doing we wanted the homes to be for local people and so did the parish council but the local authority said no they had to go out to the open pool of people and and this seemed in this instance unholy unfair because of the type of place it was where we were developing so I thought there must be a better way of doing this so I came back home did a bit of research and actually thought you know what we could have got around this with the community land trust So I then became quite determined to set up a community land trust in my village because I also had seen the impact of an ageing population, increased cost of rent and and buying houses. And actually, I thought we need to make sure we safeguard the balance of the community because at that point I had children and I also was worried about the school and who was coming into our village to keep the school going. So I set up a community land trust with a number of other people. And we started to find some land. And as part of trying to find some land, I happened to speak to the largest landowner in the village who happened to be um, Sir Michael Marshall. And he said, look, you'll never get planning. That to me is brilliant. Red rag to a ball. Of course, my stubborn streak comes out. You never get planning, but you can have a go at this field if you want to. So um, sure enough, I bring the committee together. We have a go at the field and we secure a site for 20 homes, eight of them for the Community Land Trust um, to be offered at discounted rent. And um, I'm not sure who was more surprised, he or me. I was surprised it had happened quite so quickly, but I think he was surprised it had happened at all. And on the back of that, he said, look, would you like to have a job at the airport for the first phase of development we've got going on at the airport? And so... Yeah, I think it, for me, it was just like, right, I took on the system. I've won, I've beaten the system to deliver these community land trust houses. And I, I want to have a go at something a bit bigger. And I'd never worked for a landowner before. So I'd worked for an agent, I worked for a developer. And, and a chance conversation felt like the right thing. And so I went to go and work for Marshall um, as the property director. So we've talked about differences between consultancy and then developer. You know, just give me a, a quick sort of precedent in terms of how, how that changed your view then from developer to landowner. So I'd always seen my career as a triangle. And I had previously seen a, a colleague who had been valued because he had both planning and development experience. So I sort of got it in my head that I needed to have some more skill set. So, so if it was the golden triangle, I guess it was sort of agent, 
consultant or then developer and then landowner. And so I thought this move was would then make me see the other two bits. So again, I'd get to see more developers. I'd get to see more consultants and, and get the view of the landowner, which is much more vested in the project in a long term way. It's a very different mindset because you're trying to balance in this instance what a very strong Cambridge valued family business would like versus actually commercial realities, but also trying to get planning and all the policies that are in place as well. It's sometimes quite hard to square the fact that you're a family company who loves selling cars together with a planning policy that is trying to restrict cars. It doesn't all, these things are set to jar somewhat sometimes. And also things like keeping a, an airfield operationally open when people would prefer you to have an outdoor astroturf with, with floodlights, but that's not really too good when you're trying to lie on planes at night. So <laughs> there was a few conflicts and operational issues, all not of which we got. Not great bedfellows, those, are they? Five-a-side football and airplanes. No, but I tell you what, we delivered an ice rink instead that had spent 20 years trying to find a site. Because guess what? An ice rink looks a little bit like a hanger if you kind of squint your eyes a little bit. So so to those that value hangers and think planes and hangers are things of beauty, it was a thing of beauty, right? And and it's indoors, so it's lit. And it, it, it the university had spent 20 years trying to find a site following a legacy payment they'd had from a, a former student. So it sort of came together in a positive outcome that maybe no one was expecting. But um, yeah, there's always a solution to the problem. You just have to think a little laterally. Now, I've got LinkedIn in front of me now, Emma. So I've, again, I've got the benefit of hindsight. And I know there is a return back to Hills. So given all that positive stuff you've you've told me about Marshalls, I'm curious, what's the catalyst then that draws you back into the organisation you left a couple of years ago? Oh, well, number one, Hill decided to sponsor the roundabout on my journey into work in the morning, which is quite annoying. Um, <laughs> if you've ever sat in traffic, which if anybody coming into Cambridge does on a regular basis, that's what you do. So literally, I'd sit at the roundabout. Now, whether it was done on purpose, I don't know. It could have been tongue in cheek. Who knows? But right, every morning and every evening, I'd see the Hill logo driving in and out of Cambridge, just on the roundabout on the edge of the airfield. So it was kind of annoying, but always a an omnipresence there. And We'd done this amazing planning application of 1,300 homes. We'd done it using a, a method involving all the general public. It was called Inquiry by Design. And, and basically over a week, we had over 2,000 people in designing the master plan. Everybody from local school teachers, agents, people on the airfield, our workforce, counsellors, all sorts of people doing it. And we got that planning application in within a year which was amazing, bearing in mind the scale. And it was in planning and we'd been working through the Section 106, but it was quite apparent it was going to be sat in planning for a long time. And we'd taken on board a brilliant planner. And if I'm honest with myself, there wasn't a huge amount for me to be doing. And this is nearly always something that repeats in my career. When I don't feel I'm giving 120% probably, because I'm a bit of a workaholic, I start to think I'm not doing enough. I'm not pulling my weight and I personally feel I could be doing more. And so that you start opening a wound and then you start scratching at it a little bit. But, you know, it, it's just there in the background. 
And then I was approached by Andy Hill and said, would I consider going back to Hill to head up a, a, a new project? But it was an agri-tech project. So working alongside some farmers and Hill in a joint venture. And it sort of brought together two of my strengths from the past and it caught my interest. I'm not going to lie at that moment in time. I was thinking, what will I be doing for the next year whilst we're waiting for planning? And this job offer came along and it, it just seemed opportune and something that hadn't been done before. And that's a that's a pretty much a theme as well that runs through. I didn't really appreciate that until maybe a couple of years ago. But I thought, you know what, it hasn't been done before. There's no rule book that needs to be followed. And actually, I think I've probably got the skill set. It did take a little bit of convincing, I'm not going to lie. But actually, yeah, I decided to leap and work for a, a hill joint venture called Smithson Hill um, together with a farming company. And that's how I left Marshalls. Very sad and still very much in contact with everybody. But but for me, it seemed like the right time to move. I, I need to be busy. Why do you think that is? And the reason I say this, you, you set out then situation whereby you've put in all this hard graft with marshals you've brought in an expert to get the planning this feels a chance for you just to take a bit of a breather and, and reap what you've sowed to many people they think this is the worst time to leave this is the chance i'm, I'm going to get all the plaudits and i'm going to i'm going to get an easy um, stretch for the next 12 months i don't know it is really bad I am the child that got all the badges in the brownies. You know what I mean? And that didn't come from anybody. It's a force that comes from within. And if I'm really honest, it probably comes from my mum and my grandmother before her. Um, we're just those type of women. We like to be busy. We like to do stuff. And I think we learn from doing as well. So, you know, it's most unusual. I don't see this reflected quite as much in my children, if I'm honest with you. But um, I don't know. It's it's just a need to keep learning. And with a healthy dose of something my dad always felt, which he thought he was always going to die. His parents died early in their 60s. My dad, bless him, lived well into his 80s. But actually, he did sort of put a bit of a fear of God in me that I was always, I could die tomorrow. And I still hold that now, even though, bless him, he's passed away. So so it's like live for the moment, achieve as much as you can, get out as much as you can. You know, if you're going to make a difference, now's the time to go make the difference. I, I almost run to volunteering as well. If I see a need, I think, oh, I could do that and, and sort of run towards it. But it, I realise that's not normal now. But for a long time, I just thought everybody was like that. Well, the, this is a good chance for me to bring in a bit of the research we, we were able to do before the podcast. And I asked this in, individual just to tell me something that's just a little unusual about Emma. And you know what, he, what uh, they thought were one of your superpowers. And this is what they said. She's a leader and a doer. So when she has an idea or a mission, she does not try to fuel it with talk or commentary. She gets life into it by shutting out background noise and getting stuff actually done. Now, that's very nice to hear. But what I do want to do is I want to dig into that a little bit. And I want to ask, you know, what's the secret to staying focused on that mission? How do you make sure you're not distracted? <clears throat> so nearly always the mission comes from something being a problem or a need so it's it there's a very strong motivation sometimes being just dare I say it, pissed off with something but you know what I mean it, it comes from something inside that just thinks that's not right that needs to be 
resolved and solved and and I don't know that's where the fire ignites if I'm honest and then a pure stubborn determination which is not always the best streak to have but a stubborn determination to sort of prove to myself I can do it but that's the thing I'm not trying to prove it to anybody else and I think that comes back to the earlier point I could always sometimes sit and have an easy life I'm not trying to be there for the end game and the cutting of the ribbon there's plenty of other people on any project to do that the thrills in the chase it's the buzz of like that's what I get from development as well right it's the buzz of achieving but that's probably the one thing I'm not very good at is actually acknowledging what I've achieved and actually resting in the moment for a bit I nearly am already on to the next thing before I've even finished doing what I last did so I mean that's a really nice segue then into what does come next okay so the strategy was we were going to build an agri-tech business park for Cambridge so I had the absolute great pleasure in actually, and, and going back to your early point, taking some time to do some research as to what agri-tech is, what it could be, where the world's going, going to some amazing and interesting conferences like the UK Irrigation Conference, probably not on many people's radar, um, but, but lots of different things that actually impact on the farming community. But then in the second uh, breath, also talking with brand new startups coming out of Cambridge for people that have probably never really stepped foot on a farm, but just for people coming together with interesting technology. So I spent a good couple of years literally sitting alongside different types of people learning where I thought the industry was and where it was going. And we brought together a team of about 50 external consultants. I sat outside Hill in a separate office and we kept it, kept it pretty secret squirrel because we wanted to make sure we had something before we move forwards. Uh, we submitted a planning application. Unfortunately, we weren't successful through local planning and then we went in to appeal. But during that time, I met an awful lot of people who I'm still dealing with now in all different types of guises. So great to sort of be working with startups, working in the new sort of tech sector area and also slightly scaring ourselves on a number of things. It exposed one, the cost of electricity if you're trying to bring in power to a new site. So that got me interested in electricity. And also, dare I say it, the lack of water we have in this country because farmers' licences were being turned off literally with 24 hours notice from the Environment Agency. And when trying to grow potatoes, guess what? One of the things you kind of need is water. So, so I started to get more interested in utilities from a farming point of view, but also in a development angle as well. I'm really interested in soil health and how all these things interlink, climate food production, food security, you know, energy, all these things are just so intrinsically linked, but, you know, can actually be used together for good. So what was the outcome? Uh, well, we overcome a lot of the planning opposition that we had at our planning application stage through appeal, but unfortunately, ultimately, the appeal didn't go forward. Um, we were basically told that there was no economic need for agri-tech and, and food security was not an issue. Now, <laughs> roll the clock forward to now. It's, it's very much stuff that everybody talks about every day, but, you know, maybe we're just a bit too early in our thinking and had read the music, but just, just too soon, which is disappointing, but it's just one of those things. But it taught me an awful lot, and it taught me about doing a major planning appeal, and it also taught me about personal resilience. When you believe something to be right and you, you feel that it's right, to be able to talk to people about it in a passionate way and really understand an industry, that for that I'm forever grateful. And I've taken some of those learnings from, from that time and, and used them you know, in all the other roles I've had since. 
so that's the close of one chapter. Does the next chapter open up immediately? Not quite. Whilst we were waiting for the planning appeal, I was asked by Andy Hill to uh, get involved in Foundation 200. Andy decided he wanted to do a big project uh, on homelessness. So myself, tasked with other colleagues, we designed a unique single person home for the homeless people to be deployed around the country as and where it was needed. A 30-year lifespan, fully volumetric, and six of them to run off one air source heat pump and be very low energy. So we designed that with a homeless charity, something I'm really proud of. As I say, a lot of Hill colleagues put into that design, and that is a project that is still going on now. But but I knew working on that project for, for me probably wouldn't satisfy me. We'd designed the home, we'd brought in the manufacturing and the, fa- uh, and the factory and all the experts the project needed. So I was approached by um, four housing associations to see whether I consider moving to head up their development company they'd come together in joint venture with called um, Evera Homes. So four housing associations and a development company set to develop homes quicker in the Cambridgeshire and Peterborough area uh, linked to the new combined authority. So again, a a newish role. Um, The company had been going for about two and a half years uh, when I finally moved into that. And it was to bring everybody together to literally roll out big development sites, but with an emphasis on um, better homes, more environmentally sensitive homes, more green spaces, and um, maintain a high level of affordable housing alongside the private as well. So at this point, then, I want to bring in a little bit more of our, our research, Emma, and, and again, benefit from some of the, the what our research has listed, some of your sort of key skills. Now, Ever is the, the sort of the sum of four separate housing associations, so I suspect you've had you know quite a variety of views and opinions and personnel. So I think this is this is particularly pertinent. So our research dug up that uh, another contact referred to your strengths as she's able to assert herself and lead strongly, not by shouting loudly nor by taking any overtly aggressive stances, but by drawing calmly and rationally on all of her accrued expertise to get results. So it begs the question then in terms of how you get that team on board with your vision. Wow. I mean, that's quite a statement, isn't it? But that's probably is, probably is right if somebody's observing in. The first team was the the first thing, there was no real sense of team. Everybody was still branding out as their individual housing association. No one was using the the email, which sounds a bit flippant, but the power of marketing and brand is something that really became apparent in that role, that people were not living the brand or living it both internally or externally. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I made sure everybody started using their email address if they were part of the project. And then this will seem slightly flippant, but we got fleeces for everybody with the brand on the fleece okay and literally they wore the logo above their heart and you know had something to march around site feeling proud that they were wearing and living and breathing the company and it sounds ridiculous but that was a really big thing at that point in time because all of a sudden they weren't team housing association 1234 they were actually team evera and that that really brought the team together in terms of getting a grip on the projects, it was safe to say that, you know, there needed somebody to coordinate that and bring people together. And I think 
they had done a brilliant job for two and a half years, but I think everybody was looking for somebody to come in and sort of bring it together. So I guess I arrived at the right time. Um, I'm not going to put my, too much on myself, but but being somebody there to bring people together, to coordinate, to foster a sense of team, community, focus, ambition, I think that's what it was missing previously a little bit. And with a strong sense of sustainability from from my angle, taking the decision to move all of our future schemes off gas and straight onto air source heat pumps ahead of the curve was a quite a bold move, but actually something I felt very passionate about, that that was the mood music in the market and we needed to be moving quicker if we personally were to differentiate ourselves from other developers in the market. How does that then, how does that accumulation of four separate housing associations, how does that lead then to the role today? working with one of the biggest brands, the disruptors in energy and utilities? Well, it's safe to say I didn't see it coming, but that's with all my career moves. However, the joint venture was a five-year agreement and it was coming up to five years. So one of parts of my role was negotiating a seven-year extension between each housing association had two different boards and going around the boards and doing it. I thought we got everybody to a seven-year extension But then we had big issues in the housing sector, quite rightly, around mould and damp needing to be addressed. And the housing associations have taken this very seriously. So actually, what came to pass is their key focus really had to be their existing tenants and not actually developing new. So I spent some time pulling that apart and then moving into one of the housing associations. However, in parallel, as I'm one to keep busy... I had used the community land trust that I'd set up for the housing to try and address the issue of oil in the village and being annoyed with being on oil with prices going up and down. I found another person in my village who equally felt the same and we decided to take the village off oil. Roll the clock forward in parallel to all the jobs I've had. We have the first UK's rural district heating scheme in the country and there happened to be a write up in the Times Uh, sorry, yeah, the Sunday Times, just as I was pulling Ever into its constituent parts. This went out, Greg Jackson, the chief exec of Octopus, saw it. And a couple of weeks later, I was asked if I'd come in and talked him through how I'd achieved this community project in my village and talk it through. He very kindly offered me a job and really then a tough decision. Did I stick with what I knew already or did I make a leap into a completely different sector and into the world of energy? And uh, I chose to take the leap. And it is a leap, isn't it? I think that's such a good word to describe this. This is so far out of the lane of traditional sort of real estate or real estate development that it just wouldn't ping on most people's radars. So what what was it for you? What How, how did you weigh up this risk versus reward? I don't think I'd have ever applied for a job if I'd seen it advertised. I think that's the first thing to say. But in terms of weighing up the risk and reward... Energy and utilities had become increasingly important in my mind, how we actually keep the lights on in this country. We'd had a number of fuel cuts that had happened, you know, all these different things build up the cost of oil, the crisis going on. And I think I think I'd tried to make a difference in house building and all I'd managed to achieve realistically was add some air source heat pumps into homes. I hadn't really moved the industry forward much and that was just you know my token bit I could do I genuinely thought and again a bit of my dad in the back of my head like every day could be for dying so you've got to achieve something today right so if I really want to go and achieve 
you've got to be in it to win it and get into the industry and 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 go and deliver and 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 it just seemed exciting and Greg impressed me and the sort of projects they were working on were just things you you couldn't almost imagine you know and this was just people pushing forward and driving and disrupting and and that it set off all the lights and all the alarm bells and the excitement in me you know it's again it's chasing stuff that hasn't been done before. Now there's going to be lots and lots about this new role and sort of new industry we uh, we could spend to unpack but what I really wanted to do and it was I wanted to be able to get your perspective now having spent years then in real estate in advisory development as the landlord and now in that sort of tech disruptor space what is it your colleagues in your sort of earlier career could really benefit from terms of how from your perspective now on how these two industries how they are similar or how they're different I think the ability to take an idea and run with it to be able to adapt it quickly and if it works roll it out and if it doesn't work kill it off and move on to the next project I think there is not enough innovation maybe in the property sector where there could be more. And I think sometimes things get very bogged down in procedures and policies, which they're there for safety and all the right reasons. But you can sometimes have a policy for policy's sake. And a lot of the time, if nobody's reading the policy anyhow, why did you need it? So at Octopus, we don't really have, other than for core requirements like regulatory or, or health and safety, we don't have standard systems of policies, procedures. We don't have an HR team, for example. So it's a very different system. Also, we may need to wake up and smell the mood music that Google Docs is a thing. Um, on my first day, I got given a Mac. I nearly cried. I couldn't turn it on. But the tech sector is very much into Google Drive, sharing documents, you know, Google Meets, a very different system to, dare I say, it, traditional Windows and Teams. And that has an awful lot of advantages. I think data is massive in our industry and that is something maybe the property industry is starting to grapple with maybe around some of the issues around fire safety. But actually, data can be really interesting. And that's something that we're seeing coming through in the surveying world where computers learning algorithms, using back data on valuations. We're seeing more and more automated valuations coming through the system. So actually, I think for all industries to try and crystal ball gaze into the future and think, actually, what could computers be doing in our roles? And what actually does the human element need to be the added value? And I think that's something that that in Octopus, we're very aware of on a day-to-day basis and utilise huge amounts of data in order to facilitate what we do and innovate. But the property sector probably really isn't yet in that space yet. Now, Emma, whilst not an employer, you know, we, know, we know you're now heavily involved with the RSCS and it is in a transition, it is in a period of change. So I wanted to ask you that question in terms of how, uh, how much are you involved? So I proudly became a surveyor, a rural surveyor back in the day. And I think it's an amazing institution that is upheld around the world. The difficulty is, I think, for many surveyors, myself included, we, we may have lost connection a bit with the RICS over time. And there's now a real drive to engage back with surveyors to make the institution relevant to today. I was recently appointed chair of the RICS Residential Forum. And on the back of that, I am trying to encourage more people to come to surveying, to stay in surveying and also make 
sure that actually, you know, we're relevant to our members and most importantly, ensure that the general public get the best service from surveyors. We were set up by a royal charter and actually, you know, surveyors are meant to be acting in the best interest of the public. And in a moment where houses have got to be retrofitted now to bring them close to net zero, where sustainability is a massive driver for policy, how surveyors act and treat this is going to be key for the general members of the public. So I feel immensely proud that I'm heading up the residential panel, but we've got some key challenges ahead as to how we want to take this forward. So Emma, whilst inevitably there was loads and loads we could we could have sort of um, discussed, I've got to draw this to a close, but I wanted to ask then, with the benefit of your experience, with, with each of these different employers and, de- and different um, sectors you've been involved in, what would you say has been your, your biggest lesson to learn? For me, it's follow your heart and your passions. If something feels right and you know it's right, you've probably thought about it long and hard enough and really go with that gut instinct to make the move. Only you know what's going to get you out of bed in the morning and get you excited about going to work. And therefore, you should seek to try and find it. And if you're not finding necessarily everything you want from the workplace, do what I've done. Set up a community land trust or join a group outside of work that helps you fulfil those passions to make you feel a really rounded individual. And the one thing I can say, and it's taken a fairly long time, as we've discussed, is that I've actually now found a role where my passions and job collide. And it really does feel a very special place to be. And I know other people find it earlier. They have their calling to be a doctor age 13 or whatever it happens to be. I never felt that draw, that that pang. So, so keep looking, keep hunting, fill in the gaps with other things you can do outside of work as a volunteer. Offer your services. And then I genuinely hope you'll be as lucky as I have been to, to bring these things together. Well, Emma, thank you very much for this. I've really enjoyed our episode and it's been so packed full of sort of practical sort of lessons as well. I'm sure the audience will have really enjoyed it and really benefited. Thank you again. Thank you.